At this current moment, I thought at the year of 2021, we would have been past this. We would have been a country that was embracing togetherness, diversity, culture, learning from each other. You don't understand another race until you get to know that race. All righty. Hey, look at there. We're back. That's right. After, uh, what, what, were we, what were we off? Three weeks? Is that all it was? Three weeks? Three little tiny weeks? Man, they flew right yeah. by. Yeah. yeah. This is Alabama Politics this a, week. Somebody's yeah. got a tan. <laughs> oh, are you talking about yourself? <laughs> I always have a tan. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I've been I've been at the beach. Uh, yeah. so I am Josh Moon, and that is uh, David Purcell. That's right, man. We uh, uh yeah. So I, I have uh, I have been at the beach. I am still at the beach. <laughs> so um, you know, listen. It's the uh, the benefits of working remotely. Yes. Uh, is that uh, on occasion you can take an extended period of time to go and do that work somewhere uh, more desirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's you'll have noticed that I still have stories and things like that in, the, I have. in APR. And uh, so I've not quit working. I just uh, have moved my location where I produce that work uh, a little farther south into a place that's a little sandier and a little sunnier. And, uh, and we've had a good time. Uh, Your productivity time. is crazy. Your productivity is still up there. I've been I've been watching. You. <laughs> it's, uh, I wouldn't say that, but it's uh, it's 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 declined. It's declined. Oh, has it declined? Okay. I, I didn't notice. It has. It has. Like... It has declined. Uh, oh, but okay. um, you know, listen, nothing so much that people would dock pay. So that's all God. I'm worried about. You know, well, I want I want to know where the line is, and then that's I want right. to go just above it. That's, just above that's it. it. Uh, that's the secret yeah, to success in life, with... by the way. Knowing that's, where the line right. is. It's, yeah. That's how I work with painkillers as well. If, uh, <laughs> if I have a pain uh, and I'm going to take something, I want you to tell me what's going to kill me and then back it off just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, that's, uh, so I can do that. All right. But uh, we've got a good show. Uh, yeah. We really, really do have a good show. Uh, we'll have Melinda Edwards uh, that's going to join us here in a few minutes. And uh, uh, she is the daughter of Willie Edwards, uh, one of the gentlemen who was killed, murdered. I shouldn't say killed. He was murdered during the civil rights uh, uh, era. Uh, and, uh, and she's going to talk about, uh, you know, her life and, um, and really, uh, I got into this with, with Ms. Edwards because I wanted to know, uh, you know, there's so much talk about critical race theory and, right. uh, the teaching of an accurate history. I wanted to demonstrate to people what happens if you, if people are ill-informed, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and ill-informed gets you. Uh, you know, the, where you're the killers of your father walk free and, and have families of their own. You get to watch them grow up over the course of a lifetime. And, uh, but, uh, man, I got into a story that was much, much more than that. Um, and, and I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that with, uh, with Miss Edwards uh, mm-hmm. and her outlook. And I think people will be, uh, she's a, she's a wonderful lady. She really is. Uh, she is a very, very, very upbeat. Uh, as you'll hear, uh, right. but uh, yeah, so we got that, right. and uh, but let's do, let's do news uh, yeah, a little bit here first, and um, I think over the course of the last three weeks, um, probably the biggest stories in the state has been the ongoing uh, 
Mo Brooks, Katie Britt, Senate race, uh, U.S. Senate race. And, um, I, you know, I, I know there's the, the trial of Mike Blakely, and we're going to get to that. It's taking place in Limestone County. But I, I don't know that that tops the national-level news of of that Senate race uh, and Mo Brooks and being crazy Mo Brooks. And, uh, you know, Katie Britt outraising him three to one and him sending out a desperation letter. <laughs> and, um, and then today, was it today or yesterday that – uh, which would be Thursday, sorry, yeah. uh, for, for everybody. Uh, Richard Shelby um, took a swipe at Mo. He did. Um, yeah, I'd he did. Tell it, him. it was. Um, I will say for me, I don't know about you, but I was I was a little surprised that he did that. I didn't I didn't expect that he was going to um, to actually throw a punch. I knew he mm-hmm. was going to continue to be supportive of his uh, former. Chiefs of Staff, Katie, uh, Katie Britt, but that he mm-hmm. would actually throw a punch in Mo kind of surprises me. But you know what? Shelby is savvy. He's a savvy mm-hmm. politician. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that what may have encouraged him to do that, I'm speculating, obviously, but I think what may have encouraged him to do that is what you said earlier, Josh, the fact that it's so blatantly obvious that Katie Britt has tapped into the vein of Republican financial support that Mo has clearly missed and maybe doesn't even have the ability to tap into. And that's mm-hmm. a clear sign of a campaign in serious trouble, especially when you consider that Donald Trump has been openly endorsing Mo and taking swipes at Katie Britt and Britt, to her, you know, to her credit, did a great job, I think, of fending off Trump's attack and really sort of nullifying it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that I think Shelby decided, you know, which is always smart in politics, when your when your opponent is down, give him a good kick in the groin. That's what you do. <laughs> That's what you got. That's do. right. Double tap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's a uh, yeah. You're right. I, I think that's. Um, well, Brooks has a big problem, all right, and I and I've said it before, and you know, idiots who yammer on the radio, uh, you know, dismissed it as always, well, you know, people that Mo Brooks are paying to, to talk kind about him, um, said, you know, it's it's, it's a non-issue. The people, you know, th- this money thing is is not a, that big a deal. Well, it is a big deal. Uh, you know, it's it's a big deal when you have the image that Mo Brooks has. And it's a big deal when you are uh, kind of an unknown candidate in Katie Britt. And if you have a lot of money, you can overcome that unknown po- uh, possibility. If you do not have a lot of money, you are stuck with whatever image the national media paints of you. Uh, and that is a problem, I think, for a lot of sane voters. And And there are, I know, I know, hold on, there are a few of those still left in the Republican Party oh, uh, sure. out there. There yeah. are there are yeah. sane people that, that want somebody who's not a fruitcake out there handling uh, business for them. They would like somebody who could go in and kind of work and get things done. I mean, Mo Brooks has managed in his time there to draw a lot of attention to himself. A lot of attention to himself, but in actual work, he has managed to get one resolution passed in 11 years, all right? And zero bills and one resolution to rename a post office uh, in Athens. That's what his accomplishments have been since he's been in office. And he's been in office for, uh, for some sort of public office for 40 years now. Yeah. So, you know, this idea that he's outside of the swamp is nonsense. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, the man no, he's is been the backstroking swamp. in the swamp. He's yeah. Been backstroking. Hell, as a matter of fact, 
you could say that Mo Brooks is the worst of the worst of the swamp because he is the guy that does nothing but benefit himself That's from right. being there. All right? That's right. You can say Richard Shelby's the swamp all you want, but at least Richard Shelby's sending money back to the state and getting jobs. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, is, is his, has he gotten wealthy over the course of his time there? Hell yes, he has. Very, very wealthy. Uh, doing very, very well for himself. All right. They're, they're not missing meals at the Shelby house. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, the lights are all on uh, for a long time over there. You know, they're not they're not missing bills. Um, and, and so but at the same time, if there's money coming back to the state, people tend to say, yeah, you know, especially business leaders, that's the kind of sane, uh, respectable, uh, you know, reliable, reliable sort of governance that you're looking for, where with Mo Brooks, know what the hell you're going to get from day to day he may go off on a tangent on some guy running the defense contracts over here and that's it you know huntsville shut out and and everybody screwed over here uh and that's that's what people worry about with him well i think what you what what we were talking about earlier in terms of the line you got to know in life where the line is and (laughs) whatever circumstance you're in and with shelby i think what we have seen repeatedly is that shelby you know, we don't, we, and this does not mean that we agree with him politically. We don't. We oh, disagree oh, with him politically. Right. Yes. But what we admire or or respect certainly is that mm-hmm. he knows where the line is. He understands that the line for him is bring to Alabama things that will benefit Alabamians. Yes. And that has been his modus operandi uh, for years. Now, mm-hmm. along the way, yeah, we've had to deal with politics that we don't like. And, you know, I've heard him make speeches where he said some things that I didn't agree with or appreciate. But uh, but by and large, Shelby has not been, you know, uh, like a virus infected, you know, partisan. He's really yeah. been fairly tame, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of uh, in terms of partisanship. You know, relative yeah. to his his colleagues, especially Mo Brooks, and and he's delivered for Alabama. You talked about him getting wealthy over the course of time, okay? And and you know what? Uh, he's not the only one in Congress. Democrats and Republicans both, oh, no. you know, yes. get wealthy uh, by yes. virtue of having the yeah. advantage of knowledge and opportunities that the rest of us outside of the Senate and the House don't get. So they all do it. You know, they all no, of do course. It. I mean, you see Nancy Pelosi's refrigerator? Come on, man. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, that's, uh, yes, they do. They do. They all yeah, do. They, they all, all do figure it. out ways. And, and, yeah. it's, and it's it's nothing nefarious in the, in most cases. I well, mean, people talk about yes. the Obamas, you know, you know getting all, the, all that wealth. They wrote books and they gave speeches. The people paid them for the speeches. That's how it works, yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, you and, know. And, and also hey. they get, and also they get in Congress, they get access to insider information. Let's yeah. not let's not trivialize. There is that. also that. I'm that's not a trivializing. Big, that's a big part right. of it too. And when you're, you're sitting on the committee, and, yeah. huh? But when you're sitting on the committee for you know yeah. for, for certain things, and yeah. you know, and, that, and unfortunately, they roll it's not illegal. You know, and and no. I don't know. You know, we can. It should we can be. De- we, it should be. We can. We can debate. You know. You know who's really culpable there, but I would argue that both parties are culpable. Sure, but, they are. But nonetheless, we know what we're getting with Shelby, and we know that Alabama is going to benefit. I would assume the same with Katie Britt if she's going to follow in his footsteps. 
you know, I would assume that that's oh, going yeah. to be her posture as well. But with Mo, it's really clear Mo doesn't care about that stuff. And yeah. he's already no. told us that. He's no, told it, us that if we are looking for somebody who's going to do what Shelby has done, we need to vote for somebody else. That's what yeah. he has told yeah, his uh, own he's, uh, yeah, he's Republican people. Out of his own mouth. Yeah. I mean, what in the yeah. world? The dude would beat you by 40 points. Why are you saying that? It just doesn't, uh, you know, it just, uh, it's like, uh, listen, if you want an Alabama type program, don't hire me at Auburn, okay? I mean, right. what are you talking about? Of course everybody <laughs> won't, you know? Uh, it's just, uh, and listen, I, you're right about Richard Shelby and us disagreeing with his politics, but. I will say that, that Richard Shelby, to me, is kind of the throwback to the way government used to be, where we didn't walk around talking about this stuff all the time, every day, you right. know, where the people just went up there and they did a job and you disagreed with them sometimes. And every now and then it was a big controversial story that popped out. But we didn't know what they did every damn day, you know, and what they always oh, horrible, you know, Republican v. Democrat you know, every single minute of every day. And so that I think that's kind of how Richard Shelby still operates. You know, yeah, you, you very rarely hear from him. Uh, even when he was in great health, you very rarely heard from him. Uh, you know, he didn't show up to every event. He just showed up to the big events that would give him lots of money. And so, uh, you know, it's just that's just how he, he operates. And, you know, he does things in kind of a professional manner behind the scenes, talking to people, building up his little coalition of folks and and uh, the folks on the other side of the aisle can go and talk to him and have a conversation with him. Yeah. I mean, maybe not as much today as they could, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, but but they still can, you know, and and I, that's what you listen. That's what we had with Doug Jones. You know, mm -hmm. that's exactly mm -hmm. who we had. We had a, a guy who was not controversial in the least. Uh, we had a guy who was getting the job done, who took it seriously, who was working for the state of Alabama and people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but, uh, the, the Trump administration signed like three of his bills. He did more in six months than Mo Brooks has done in 11 years. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. really? It yeah. just And so it's just I, I, that to me is it's a. That's a huge loss uh, to lose to lose both Richard Shelby and Doug Jones in the span of a few years, and um, you know I I will say this I I on Twitter yesterday gave Tommy Tuberville a lot of of credit uh, for his stand on on COVID nineteen and the vaccine. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen Tommy's stuff on this, uh, but he I has, do not I do not really follow. Yeah, I understand. Well, I, and I don't necessarily follow him that much either. It's just that, you know, his he has been one of the few outspoken voices in favor of this vaccine, uh, going as far as to cut PSAs, encouraging mm -hmm. people to get the vaccine. I mean, and he's done it for months now. He's done mm -hmm. it for months. Uh, and so he was way, way out in front on, on things on this and uh, in terms of people in that party. Um, well, and, well, and took a lot of criticism for it from from people inside the party as well. Well, let's let's talk about that for a minute, because I think, you know, uh, you know, OK, great. I'm, I'm happy that he's done that. Um, and I'm and I'm happy to hear you say that he's not just coming late to the party mm. as, in fact, many of his colleagues are now. And when I say mm. colleagues, I mean that loosely, not just people in the Senate. The people on that side of the political spectrum, you know, so now all of a sudden Sean Hannity is, uh, you know, giving a ringing endorsement to yeah. getting vaccinated. Yeah. You got to call from legal. 
Got a call from legal on that one. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's the governor of Florida, DeSantos. I think yeah, he's also DeSantis. now now yeah. doing that as well. Oh yeah, as as his campaign is selling, don't Fauci, Florida. Uh, yeah, uh, merchandise. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. So, but 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 there's something that seems to be happening where, uh, and I guess it's that. I mean, what do you think it is? Is it the uptick? Is it the fear mm-hmm. of the variant? Is mm-hmm. it is has it finally dawned on them? that by pushing this anti-vaxxer mentality that they're killing off their voting base? I mean, what is it, I wonder? Well, uh, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's that when when we got some real hard numbers on this thing and people saw the trend lines on this Delta variant and what was happening, uh, the stock market tanked. And so, mm. listen, it's all fun and games when you're just killing maggots, but when the portfolio takes a hit, <laughs> ooh, we, gotta, we need to take a look at that. Uh, you know, and so that's what, I guarantee you that's what happened. I, I guarantee mm. you that's what happened at, at Fox was the, the the market took a dive and some real attorneys called up uh, Rupert Murdoch family uh, and said, hey, man, what the hell? Uh, let's 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 stop this because uh, we have a we have an example in uh, I believe it was Sweden if I'm not mistaken that uh, that didn't do any lockdowns um, and and everybody held them up as this shining example of freedom and uh, and look how well it's going and then uh, as we progressed and the virus you know started to take hold uh, and people stopped going to stores out of their own volition. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden the hospitals were packed and people were sick and, and they had a much higher death rate and the, and the economy over there took a, a much harder hit for a much longer time. Uh, so, yeah, people are scared to death of this. And if that's what happens uh, through the, throughout the United States, well, you're going to have a hell of a thing. And, and this is going to be uh, we're going to have a very, I think, a very unequal pandemic that takes place over the next few months. Uh, and in states like Alabama and Florida and Mississippi, uh, you're going to have some real economic catastrophes that take place more than likely. Well, uh, yeah. And in, in states like Vermont and others that have been that are you know highly vaccinated, I think you're going to have uh, states that don't really feel it all that much. Well, and you know, my, so, my my assessment is that it's a that, that there are two things that have to happen. Yes, people need to get vaccinated, but people mm-hmm. also need to return to masking up when they're in certain public spaces and they need to be smart about social distancing distancing still because if you recall before we even had a vaccine in areas where people were wearing masks and practicing social distancing there was more control of the spread of the virus so you know this trend towards you know like I, i was looking at the nba finals and i and i saw what they were saying was at times 25,000 people, maybe even more crammed out in that deer, uh, that deer area. Oh, 65,000 on game six. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 65,000. And I'm thinking, doesn't look like there are a lot of masks there. That looks like a super spreader kind of situation to me. Oh, they were outdoors. They're fine. Well, I don't know. Not when there's 65,000 people crammed together. I think outdoors, yeah. I think the, the benefit of being outdoors is greatly reduced. I just I think, think so. I think people need to start getting smart about this thing and, and, and using all of, the, all of the resources that we have at our disposal to quell this. And I was happy to see when I was at Publix earlier this morning, I was happy to see that there were people starting to wear masks again inside. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it, and a lot of other people I know have been doing it. But 
you know, people hadn't been, but you know, a lot of people just been like, Oh, okay, it's over. And I still Mm -hmm. see people walking around like that. And I think, yeah, in a public space where you got a lot of people, that's not really smart. It's just not. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not really smart at all. And you know, and I I tend to try to avoid those places just in general. I hate Mm -hmm. the, I hate the masks, uh, you know, and and it's not, it's a personal thing. And it really is. It, um, I have very, very bad dry eyes and those masks, the way they, you know the the way they force the air when you breathe yeah. towards your eyes. It just it just drives my eyes crazy. Uh, but uh, you know, so I hate them. Uh, but I'll wear them if if need be. And um, and but I you know I just try to avoid the the you know the very tight spaces with a lot of people in them. And I'll tell you the thing that worries me more than anything though is you know I've got three year old running around and um, you know that this Delta variant seems to be a little more impactful on children uh, than the strains were last year mm-hmm. and. You know, I think we have twenty some odd kids now in uh, in the hospital, um, and that's that's a pretty high rate given given what we were facing uh, last year at this time. Uh, and and I just, you know, uh, you know, there's nothing there's nothing really I can do. I can't you can't give a the, the vaccine to the three year old, uh, you know. And so, yeah. you know, and then what am I going to do? Am I going to keep her out of school? Am I going to you know? And so, it's uh you know, I, I, I tell you. You spread that virus to my daughter, and I find out about it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be some trouble. Sure, of uh, course, right. of course. Yeah, we've talked. That, we've talked a little about my redneck yeah. chances, uh, and so, <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the, that includes that. Course, uh, but uh, so you know, it's it's just a um, it, it is worrisome, and uh, and I, I wish people would. Uh, would go get the vaccine, read up, talk to your doctor about it. Go, you know, I mean, at this point, man, 98% of the people in the hospital, 98% of the people who are dying are unvaccinated. Right. I mean, right. I, that's, and, and you look, you can talk all day long about side effects from the vaccine and, and adverse effects and all that. Um, look at the actual numbers of that. And, and we're, you know, it's, it's minuscule. Sure. Minuscule. Sure. Uh, as compared that's, to you know that's stuff. not um that's not anything that um you know logical people have been disputing i think the only thing that logical people have been questioning is whether or not you know the science had been given enough time to prove itself you know is in my mind you know we mm. we're now deep into this with not only looking at the the virus itself, but also the impact of the vaccine. I think the science is proving that the vaccination process is the way to go, you know? And so, uh, you know, of course, I know there's still questions and they're going to be. For example, they're now saying that people like me who've taken the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, you know, may uh, may not be as protected by the Delta variant. And they're saying that we may now have to consider or there may have to be some consideration given to whether or not people like me are going to need a booster shot. So, you know, this is this is the part of it that's, you know, a little that 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 has always made me a little uneasy about the vaccine, which is that, you know, you know, logically, because of the truncated time period, there's going to be an evolution in what we know and and what we understand and what it ultimately means. But as you've alluded to, that's a risk, you know, that, you know, if you're a thinking person in the final analysis, you say, well, you know, it's a risk I'm going to have to take. And I think, I think right now, 
you know, yeah. uh, you know, that was still, I don't regret taking the vaccine. I don't regret it. I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And you know, I, I think, Mm -hmm. I, I think that people should should talk to their doctors about it. I think that uh, you know if you want some some information about the processes uh, that led to the creation of the vaccines and and how this all worked out, go back and listen to our interview uh, with with uh, Doctor Sack from UAB. Um, uh, you know I think that that was a you know he, he provided about as good of information on that and was as connected uh, to the people. Uh, involved in the process as, as you can be. And I think he, he provides a lot of really good information, but all right, we're going to, we're going to have to move on before we, before we slide out though, uh, we, we've asked people uh, to re leave reviews um, and, you know, uh, write a review on the well, Apple. When you go to Apple podcast, you can rate the podcast and leave a review. And some people, you know, they do better than others and every, every review can't be great. And so, and we'll read even some of the not great ones, even when they take shots at me. Um, and so um, this, this review is from Stetson. And we're going to read one of these each week. So if you, if you come in and, and you write a review up, you'll at some point we'll read uh, because I, I, I can't imagine there's going to be thousands of these things. Uh, so, but uh, you know, Good, good or bad, we'll we'll read the review uh, at some point. Right. I'm not saying if you go in and write it tomorrow, we're going to read it next week. But at some point, we'll get around to it. Uh, this one's from Stetson. Although I often wish the show was better, it's the best weekly look at the landscape, and they get well-informed and well-connected guests. David's level approach is a much-needed tether, as Josh's rants can sometimes veer into Iowa <laughs> territory. So Stetson is clearly related to David. Uh, but these two are generally on top of the latest headlines, and they can be direct and honest about the limitations of this state and those who lead it. Even when it is a little frustrating, I consider it a vital listen each week. Uh, signed, David's mom. Who's writing uh, apparently so, from uh, heaven, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm it's a, it's a, it's a real review from Stetson. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, listen, I... <laughs> Listen, Sesson, I should rant about this for a few minutes, but I'm not going to because that's what you want, okay? I'm not going to because that's what you want. I know it. Uh, all right, let's slide out. We'll come back in a minute talk to uh, to Melinda Edwards, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it should be a pretty good show. Back in a minute, Alabama Politics This Week. Hey, everybody. If you would uh, like an opportunity to interact with us here at uh, Alabama Politics This Week, uh, we've got a great way for you to do that. Uh, shoot a question over to apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Anything about Alabama politics you want to know about, uh, I don't know, what, what everybody likes to drink or uh, where everybody likes to hang out or you know, whatever. Whatever your question may be. Uh, what chances the Democrats might have uh, in the uh, the upcoming midterm elections? Uh, shoot us a question over at apwproducer at gmail.com. apwproducer at gmail.com. Thanks. All righty. Welcome back in Alabama politics this week. Uh, Josh Moon, David Person, and we are happy now. Uh, really, really happy uh, to have Melinda Edwards on with us. And uh, she is the daughter of Willie Edwards, uh, who, uh, you know, through, I, I would love to say, uh, is probably one of, of the more well-known stories of the civil rights era. Um, but uh, I don't know that that's the case. I think our our whitewashing of history and, and other things that, that we've done along the way have, have made it really probably an obs a more obscure story. 
uh, of that. But uh, Willie Edwards was was murdered uh, 1957 in Alabama, forced to jump off a bridge in, into the Alabama River, and uh, and was later found. Uh, uh, Melinda was three years old at the time, I believe, and yeah. um, uh, and and I, I I'll tell you the backstory here of of this uh, of how I came to talk to Miss Edwards. Uh, it was I wanted to, uh, with all the talk about critical race theory and all the talk about teaching an accurate history, I wanted to contact her and talk about how you know people who are really involved in that history uh, are affected by the stories that we tell and the stories that we don't tell. Um, and I expected one story and then I got one, I think that was, uh, so much more than that. Um, and, and, but first I want to, I want to get into, if we can just, you know, your, your dad and, and that time and kind of what happened with you and your family in, in the immediate aftermath of your father's murder. Well, from what I can recall, and as I got older, um, we lived down the street from my grandparents. So after um, dad disappeared, I lived with my grandparents and my aunt and uncle and my brother. My sister was with my mom until my brother was born. Of course, as you know, he was born in, in, in March, at the end of March. So he never did know our dad. So um, for us, it was just this, where's our father? Who's our dad? Um, always asking that question. And my mother didn't feel we were old enough to know yet. And I, she did not tell us until we each reached around age 12, where um, she would let us know. But um, by the time I was 10, our family, my mother remarried, we relocated to Buffalo, New York, where I grew up and went to school there. But there was always that nagging feeling, you know, mom, what about dad? So she finally sat down and told me what happened, that, you know, he was killed, how he was killed, uh, why he was killed is what they believed. And she said, you know, you'll just have to understand that your dad is gone. And of course, my brother never challenged it or asked about it because he grew up with a stepfather. So he always thought, you know, that was dad until my mom was old enough to tell him why he has a different last name. But it, it did cause a lot of anguish in our family. My mom became a single mother. Uh, she had to support three children. Uh, she was a hairdresser and she was a seamstress. So those are the two things that she knew how to do. In addition, she got support from her family. But it was hard for her because she was left alone at a time where she was pregnant and had two small baby girls. And as she said to me, she did not even remember my dad's funeral. I asked her, I said, Mom, what happened? And she said, I wasn't there. And mentally, they said my mom was not there. So she did not go to the funeral. So we did, once dad's body was exhumed for the forensic scientists to uh, determine a cause of death, we did have another internment and another new casket and you know another service for him so that she could remember um, 
that he was now laid to rest again. And this time his wife was there. But I believe that's the hardest part of it, seeing how my mother suffered. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and to tell people uh, who don't know the, the story, uh, because I think there are a lot of people who don't, uh, your father was murdered by four Klansmen um, in 1957 because uh, he committed the the atrocious crime of, uh, well, and we don't even know that he had committed any crime or any, any he did anything at all, uh, much less a crime. There was no crime at all, but uh, saying something offensive to a white woman. Uh, was what they believed he had done. Uh, and so uh, as they were, the young family was sitting down to dinner. Uh, his uh, manager from Winn-Dixie, where he worked, uh, called him and asked him if he would like to pick up an extra shift. Uh, and so he went out on a delivery uh, for the Winn-Dixie that night. Uh, when he returned, uh, they were waiting on him, forced him into a car, uh, you know, beat him and, and tortured him until he got to the bridge. Um, and then, uh, then forced him to jump, uh, basically gave him two options and, and they both equal death. And, um, uh, in 1976, Bill Baxley, um, one of our uh, best attorney generals in the history of the state, uh, attempted to hold those four men ac uh, accountable for what they did. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were at that point unable to get a conviction, uh, because, uh, there was no uh, no determination of death, uh, of what caused the death uh, there. Correct. So uh, the judge tossed it all out, despite the fact, despite the fact that we had, uh, we had the admission of one of them who had been given an immunity deal. Um, and so they, they named everybody else. Then in 97, uh, after the exhumation that, that uh, Ms. Edwards talked about, uh, they, they were able to get a determination of death and determined that he had been murdered. And that at that point, then Ellen Brooks, DA in Montgomery County, took it to a grand jury. And we don't know how hard things were tried. Uh, but, you know, since you can indict a ham sandwich and we couldn't get an indictment out of this one, I think we know. Um, and it was it, it, there, there was no indictment returned out of this. They know. Bill. Yeah. Um, and so that's where things were left. And I will also say uh, that 10 days prior. Ten days prior to this occurring, to this murder of her father, two of those Klansmen, Raymond Britt and Sonny Kyle Livingston, were caught bombing the houses of very prominent civil rights leaders in Montgomery, including uh, Ralph Abernathy uh, and the Reverend and Jeannie Gretz, and where their small children were sleeping in their, in their home as well. They were caught red-handed doing this, pulled over in the car with the bombing materials and a list of bombing targets, and admitted to doing it and were acquitted by an all-white jury. So, this is why I wanted to talk to Ms. Edwards, because what I expected to find was someone who was very, very bitter about what had taken place with her family, um, and somebody that, um, that, that was, you know, very, very angry. But I, I don't, you know, after talking to you, Miss Edwards, I don't think that's the case. I don't, you know, and I think a lot of it, if you, and you tell me if I'm wrong here and, and you explain yourself, uh, but I, it seems as though the move to upstate New York, where you removed yourself from the racist atmosphere that was present in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, and in Alabama as a whole, um, played a very key role in eliminating some of those feelings. Is, am I wrong or right about that? Yes. Um, part of it was my mother, 
Go. Who told, as she was telling each of us what happened, she, like she said, she removed us from that racist environment. She said, I need to leave. Um, it was the fact that she said, I don't want you to grow up hating people of any particular race. She said, I want you as children to learn how to take each person of each race at face value of themselves. She said, there is bad in every race, but I do not want you to condemn an entire race for something that happened to your father because the entire race did not commit that act to your father. And as you were saying, the move to New York gave us a different atmosphere. One, because we were no longer in all black schools, we were in integrated schools. We were no longer in all black neighborhoods, we were in integrated neighborhoods. Uh, we had Caucasian teachers, we had black teachers. It gave us a different perspective on life. Our friends, some were white, some were black. So it changed how we looked at the world, as you said, because we were removed from a toxic environment to a place where we could learn to manage what had happened to our family, but also grow because we were getting the opportunity to interact with different races on different scales. So, I mean, it was a changing point for all of us. And I think my mom and my stepdad were right to remove us from that atmosphere and give us the opportunity to grow as people and not mm -hmm. angry and bitter. So, Miss Edwards, let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm a black person, as you are. And, uh, and as I listen to you talk, I see a very interesting, uh, I, I'm going to call it a bifurcation here, uh, two, two parallel positions that seem to be sort of polar opposite. So on the one hand, I think you're rightly saying that all white people weren't responsible for what happened to your dad, to the grotesque, racist, bigoted murder of your father. But on the other hand, you concede that there was a toxic environment. And what made that environment toxic wasn't a landfill. Sure. It was racism. Yeah. It was the racism of white people. It was white supremacy. It was white privilege. That's what made the atmosphere toxic. Would you not agree with that? Yes. I I recall growing up as a child, um, we lived in what was called the West End in Montgomery. Um, we were on one side of the tracks, African-Americans, whites were on the other side of the tracks. We knew as children, we were taught, do not cross those tracks after, after dark. Um, we knew if we were going to have to go that way to catch the bus, to go to any kind of grocery store or something like that, we were always paired with someone. So it was the fact that how could a railroad divide people and infuse this hatred for another race that is right there next to you. I mean, you were 
you were always afraid because you were taught not to look up when you were speaking to someone who was white. You were taught to say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, or no, ma'am, or no, sir. You were taught that you had to be subservient to save your life. You learned so early in life that it became a part of what you are and what you do. And when we moved north, we were still having a little bit of that in us because we were ingrained with it, you know, from childhood that every white person you have to look down, you cannot look them directly into the eye. So when our teachers, our white teachers were interacting with us, we had to learn that, hey, not everyone is saying that you have to look down. They're like, look me in the eye, talk to me. You know, you're, you're a person, you're a smart person. It was for the first time we were told we were intelligent. We had opportunities. I remember my fifth grade teacher putting my poems into um, a contest and she was so proud of me and she mentored me. And I was like, it was so different from what I had known in Alabama. And right. it was hard growing up in the West End because we had to know our place. We, we knew we could not go places. We just understood as children that, hey, you're, you know, people would disappear and you would hear the elders say, well, you know, the clan got him and you know he's probably floating in the river like my grandmother told my mom when my dad disappeared. She told her he's gone. The clan has him and he's in the river. And sure enough, he washed up three months later. Right. So, so Ms. Edwards, let me ask my final question here. Uh, what advice, since, since we know that going back, you know, 60 or so years ago when your father was murdered, we know that there was this this sort of a challenge that black people had to to navigate of you know understanding how to survive in a white supremacist society but also at the same time not being if possible if possible not being consumed by hate and bitterness and then you fast forward 50, 60 years later, where we are today. And there seems to be, in many ways, sort of the same challenge. Because we see, while the, while the manifestations of white supremacy have changed in many ways, in some ways they haven't changed, but in, in many ways they have. And so we still have this challenge, and, and yet we're more integrated than we've ever been also, and more assimilated than we've ever been. What advice do you have for people today who are trying to walk that fine line between, um, you know, not succumbing to bitterness and to hating all white people for the sins of some white people, and and yet you know, dealing with the reality that there's still, we still live in a society 
that is firmly based on white privilege and white supremacy. The top, the atmosphere today, I, it, the way it turned, it really surprised me that, in fact, that so much racism was hidden for a long time and that people were starting to feel that, hey, we need to have white supremacy again, that no one of color in this country uh, has the rights and obligations. We will try to remove their voting privileges and make it difficult for them to vote. We will redline their neighborhoods so that they don't get proper value for their homes. If they move into our neighborhoods, we will start doing things as you see now, like people videotaping African-Americans because they may be barbecuing or you think they don't own that home and they're going in to rob it. It has caused me so much angst, I will say. I have started to feel, and forgive me for this, but I have started to feel a little bitter because it's starting over again. And I believe that as a country, we are not addressing this issue. We are not discussing it. We are whitewashing it. We are not putting it in our history books. We are not teaching our children what aspired back then so that we can learn from history. I don't see us even trying to make amends for things that happen. And granted, it is not the current race of people who are responsible, but everyone has a responsibility to understand that this country was founded and built by people of different nationalities and colors. The United States was not made by one nationality. Blacks did, in fact, as it is said, we were the economy of the United States for hundreds of years. We were not given our proper due, as I feel. And I also feel that, you know, we were treated worse than dogs at times. I recall my mother telling me a hose was turned on her during the boycott of the buses in Montgomery. And I say, how can you do that to a woman? How can you do that to children? It just has me a little bitter. I am not as bitter as I should be, but I believe my bitterness is caused because at this current moment, I thought at the year of 2021, we would have been past this. We would have been a country that was embracing togetherness, diversity, culture, learning from each other. You don't understand another race until you get to know that race. It's like people were saying Muslims are bad. My best friend is Muslim. I was invited into their home. I began to understand that they are about family, community. I got to see how they interact with each other. We are not doing this 
as a society between whites and people of color. And our children are growing up to say, I don't understand what's going on. What are you guys doing? You know, they're looking at each other in different ways. They're looking at things as heterosexual or metrosexual or, or whatever. They, they're not looking at, oh, you're black or you're brown or you're, you're yellow, you're white. They are looking at each other differently. And I don't think we should poison their minds. Their parents need to understand that what has happened is done and it's over. We can't go back and fix it, but we can start now to heal as a country because the last four years were very, made me very angry so much. So I quit watching the news <laughs> while President Trump was in office because I knew that, you know, I would tweet something to him and tell him, you know, you are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. And I was blocked. A couple of times, but then of course I was allowed back in because I did tweet to him and tell him, You are you are stroking the fires of something you really don't want to happen. And I know there are those who want to reach for. I don't think that is in the best interest of this country. If you look at what happened during the Civil War, yeah. I don't believe that we want to start killing each other for something as silly as, my God, the melanin in your skin has caused you to be a bit darker. Yeah, well, you I, need yeah. to learn. No, I, I think you're right. And, and I think you, you touched on it there too with, uh, with the young people um, and, and teaching an accurate history of them. You know, to, to hear people now say, talk about that, uh, if we teach this accurate history of the United States, well, then uh, we're just going to create hate among the races and, and uh, little uh, black kids and white kids are going to hate each other. And, uh, and, and they're going to, you know, that, that if we tell them what happened, then they're just going to, that's just going to instill more hate. But uh, you had, and this was a story I was talking about earlier that I did not expect, uh, because there was a gentleman at the University of Alabama Honors College, Billy Field, uh, who taught, who teaches a, a class. Normally, it's a filmmaking class uh, where they, they create documentaries and they they kind of do it with people who are um, the lesser known stories of Alabama history. Um, but this past uh, a couple of semesters ago, they started doing one uh, on your father. Uh, and his story, and it was a podcast uh, uh, because of the uh, the pandemic that was going on. So they were they were going to create a podcast about your father, and so those students got to speak to you. Uh, those, yeah. These young, uh, you know, college age students, uh, they got to learn this dark history that was going to uh, oh, it was going to poison their minds, and it was going to make them hate. You know, the black kids in the class were going to hate the white kids in the class, and this was going to be oh, the white kids were going to feel so much guilt and shame that they would never be able to look another person in their face again uh, because that's what happens when you tell this accurate history. Uh, but that's not really what happened. Um, no. Now, so what happened? It is amazing. I was contacted by Billy Field uh, through Ellen Brooks. He had been looking for me. Apparently, my father's story changed the lives of his students. <laughs> they each wrote us letters. We have tons of letters from these students 
telling us how my father's story changed their lives and how much they wanted to ensure that the story of Willie Edwards and what it could mean for this country could continue through them. That was so touching to read all these letters, to talk to these kids and say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe what people thought would make, as you said, make the students hate each other. It actually changed their lives. And there was one student in particular named Mary Haddow. She and I have had several conversations. Mary's letter touched me so much because she told me how she took the class at first because she thought it was going to be an easy class. I'll get through this. You know, you take those electives mm -hmm. when you're in college, right? But when she got into the class and she started to understand what was happening, she told me, she said, Miss Edwards, it changed me so completely. Here is a young white woman telling me that the story of my life and of my life and my father's life and my mom changed her. And to hear her say, you know, I know a lot about Mr. Rowley and, and Miss Sarah. It's like they know all about our family. And they were willing to do whatever it took to keep this alive through them. Yeah. I, I you know, I spoke to Mary as well, and I, I'll have a story about this whole thing uh, coming up pretty soon in, in APR. And, and, um, but it's, you know, she talked about her work. She is a child life specialist. Uh, she works with, uh, with patients, uh, with sick kids uh, a lot. Uh, she talks to these kids about their treatments in hospitals and what they're going to go through and and how she can help them uh, work through this process of being sick and, and their treatments and things. And I mean, she, she deals with some very sick kids. And she said, you know, this helped her to better understand the her black patients. And he said, really, she said, really all of my minority patients. Hmm. It helped me to better understand them and their frustration. She said, because when they come to me, they are very frustrated about what's going on in their lives. They're sick. They don't, they don't, some don't really understand what's taking place. Others are, are find it one more roadblock that has been put up in front of them. And it helps me to understand what they've been through better in their lives. And also Mary's dad, I'm going to read this. All right. Because Mary's dad wrote a letter to Billy Field, uh, yeah, and, and he said, I, I am Mary's dad. I imagine you have so many students that you cannot remember them, nor do I expect you to. My purpose in writing to, to you is to tell you that Mary shared an assignment that you had her and some of her classmates do. It was a project that had them take a closer look at a social justice legal case. In the process of this project, Mary grew. She grew towards understanding man's inhumanity to man, how vicious it can all become, and then how touching it can become. Mary had an opportunity to connect with Miss Edwards, and that and the olive branch of understanding was displayed. There is no grade I could give you for this experience. I simply say thank you for this memory that you made for my daughter. She will remember it for a lifetime, and it has changed her forever. I, I mean, you know... Um, and obviously, obviously, she hates every every person now. So I mean, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, it's listen. This is what happens. This this level, and, and I'll tell you this: I I truly believe, I truly believe that this is what people want to kill. 
All right. This yeah. this level of understanding, this kindness, this um, uh, this sympathy towards people for what they have been through, this empathy towards people for what they have they are experiencing. That's what people want to kill by not teaching the history. They don't want people to understand each other. They don't want people to be close. Uh, and, and I think they want to keep that going. And, I, you know, I, I just I, I thank you for, you know, for what you, you've done and and being, you know, first of all, willing to come on here with us uh, and talk about this. Um, and, and, but also to talk to me, an idiot that didn't know anything about anything and, uh, and to educate me a little bit more and, <laughs> and to really just share a, a, a really, really great story. I, you know, we really do appreciate you coming on and, and spending some time with us. And, and I thank you so much. Well, I thank you. And I want to thank the University of Alabama Honors College as well, mm-hmm. Billy Field. And all of those people, may I say, if you're listening to this podcast, I would like to thank everyone whom over the last 40 years have done all they can to assist me to find justice. And even though that justice did not come, you kept my father's story alive. And as I said, the Klan did not kill this man. He is now bigger than life more than they ever could expect. They thought he would be gone away, but he has not. And as long as I'm alive, I plan to keep it that way. And I want to thank you gentlemen for having me on your podcast today. All right. Thank you, Ms. Edwards. It it was uh, so great. Really, really appreciate that. We'll be, uh, we're going to slide out. We'll be back in a minute to, uh, to wrap this thing up. This is Alabama politics this week. Thank you. Hey, everybody. wouldn't mind, uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. Or maybe not even a nice one, just a rating and a review. Uh, just let us know what you think about the podcast. And uh, we've gotten to where we read some of these reviews on the air because some of them are uh, pretty funny and uh, clever. So be funny and clever, and you'll get your uh, review read on the air. And uh, the rating helps us out a little bit as well. So if you don't mind, leave us a nice rating and a review or a terrible rating and a review, whatever you'd like to do. However you feel about the podcast, we appreciate your, your input. And uh, thanks for listening as always. Alrighty, welcome back in Alabama politics this week. I uh, really appreciate uh, Melinda Edwards coming on with us. She was great, um, really, really great. Uh, but uh, we're gonna switch gears a little bit uh, before we get into the into the final segment. We we asked folks last time uh, before we left for a break for three weeks uh, to uh, submit questions, um, and y'all submitted a lot of questions uh, apparently and so uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to these just like we did with the reviews and stuff you you interact man we'll pay you back uh, so we're gonna we're gonna also uh, uh, read these questions and and talk about them uh, you know uh, we'll pick up we'll pick out some of the better ones and and talk about what's going on and this one is from Nicholas uh, who says uh, who wants to know will Alabama ever have a constitution a constitutional convention to draw up a new constitution Um and before we, we answer that, I would like to say, if you would like to submit a question or an email, uh, just uh, just email apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Uh, send your question in. So uh, will they ever have a constitutional convention? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is now an effort uh, underway that will take place over the next year or so, next couple of years anyway, uh, to 
rewrite and to remove some of the language uh, from the con from our constitution. Uh, it's not going to touch on a lot of the more controversial things, um, and it's probably not going to help a whole lot in shrinking it down. But it's going to remove some of the more embarrassing factors out of it because it is. Uh, at its heart, a very, 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 very racist document. Um, it ingrains a level, a certain aspect of uh, white supremacy uh, in terms of taxation uh, and in land procurement uh, and protection of people of large landowners, uh, specifically the plantation owners. Um, it protects them to a degree that is we still say we still see played out all the time in the state. Um, now they're not going to change the taxation policies of the state to where you know uh, the the secretary is not paying a higher percentage of her salary than her boss, uh, but they are going to remove some of the more racist things that are in there. Uh, you know, are they ever going to do the other? No. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't I don't think the constitutional convention is going to happen in our lifetimes. Um it it you know, when you look at at the politics of our the current politics of our state, there's no real upside for Republicans certainly to do a major overhaul of the constitution. And I'm also and I'm going to be fair here, somebody who votes democratic, who's active in the Democratic Party, I'm not sure that even the Democratic Party would see a huge upside to doing a massive overhaul of the Constitution. Um, you know, we all can agree, and, and, and by the way, I was part of an editorial board here in Huntsville when I was uh, writing columns for the Huntsville Times years ago. Our editorial board took a very strong pro-constitutional uh, convention position. In fact, we actually did a series that ran for, I don't know, it may have been a few months, it may have been for a whole year, I don't remember exactly, where we, uh, where we tackled the Alabama Constitution and its problems and its problematic history and all of that. And so... You know, I, I think there's there there was about 20 or so years ago, there was a very strong movement to having uh, to recasting the Alabama Constitution, to rewriting it. And that, of course, would require a constitutional convention. However. That that died and there wasn't enough support from the leaders of the state for that to happen. So. If it's going to happen, it's going to mean that you're, we're going to have to have a governor who's going to have to want it to happen, and we're going to have to have a legislature that's going to have to want to want it to happen. And again, I don't think Republicans are inclined to do it, and I'm not really sure how inclined Democrats are. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know there there is currently that uh, that commission, um, and you know that we talked about that, that Ivy has. Uh, is, yeah. is kind of okayed and it's and it's pushed and it's a you know it's a bipartisan commission and and I you know I, I do think that there are people on both sides uh, of the aisle that want that would like to see the constitution cleaned up uh, you know and it their their motives are not always the purest uh, but you know even if you're wanting to remove that language simply so you can attract more businesses here uh, you know take advantage of that if you're you're one of the purists and and you do want to you know remove it for the right reasons. Uh, which is, you know, to make sure that you're actually 
uh, you actually have a constitution that, that ingrains fairness and equality. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, uh, I, I think we can, we can get to something like that. Although, you know, what we often see in these things and we have, cause we've had this before, you know, we were trying to remove racist language and stuff but before. Um, and, uh, it's, there are 948 amendments to the Constitution right, of the state, right. making it the longest in the world. Uh, but, it, you know, we, we've tried to go through this before, but the problem is, is that you, ha- you get people involved in the process who, are, who try to use that process uh, to benefit certain other things. And, other uh, interests, and that, yeah. yeah, and that often it just you know turns the whole thing upside down and, and people walk away from the table and that's why I you know I, I do think there have been some good meaning people on both sides of the aisle that have tried to get this thing done over the years uh and to remove the the racist language and to remove some of the more embarrassing portions of our our constitution and get them off the books uh but it always gets upended by the people who are in there who try to use that process to put something else in place or to, you know, back off ethics laws or something along those lines. And I think that's, that's the biggest problem that we're going to face. If we can avoid that and keep that off the table, then yeah, some people will, will fix some of that stuff, but uh, an outright rewrite, nah, they're not going to, they're not going to do that. Uh, and they're not going to, they're not going to move it along that way. But um, speaking of ethics, and ethics trials. <laughs> uh, the sheriff of Limestone County, Mike Blakely, is under trial. Uh, under uh, is on trial, I should say. He's been indicted and all that. Um, and they've had a few days of this now. And they've, the state's called a number of witnesses uh, in the trial. And I've I've followed it along from the folks that up there. Uh, you know, from AL.com have done a good job. Ashley Grimpus, uh, who who's really one of the better reporters in the state. Um, and, uh, you know, the TV stations have done a, an excellent job as well, reporting from inside the courtroom every day and tweeting out what, what witnesses are saying, what they're being asked. And it's a weird trial, man. Um, I mean, from the opening when the judge, uh, wouldn't, uh, decided to close the jury selection process to the public and the press, uh, kept the press completely out of the building, uh, for a while. Uh, then, you know, you had this whole deal on the first day with uh, Trent Willis, uh, the guy that run, yeah. uh, did run Red Brick Strategies uh, that I wrote about. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, our uh, my story is now in evidence uh, in that case. Uh, wow. uh, submitted it, submitted as part of a brief by the state, oddly enough, mm. uh, to to prove this investigation because the state pulled some underhanded stuff here, man. I mean they you know they denied that that Trent Willis was under investigation. Told the court in a hearing uh, that they. They've searched, they've, they've contacted every office, every division at the AG's office, and Trent Willis is not under any investigation. Well, they question the man, and then immediately after questioning him, they say, oh, we'd like to inform the court that Trent Willis is under investigation and he is entitled to his Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, what? <laughs> you know, and of course the defense went nuts and, about this, which rightfully so. I mean, it was an underhanded move, you know. Uh, but the judge, uh, who's kind of in the bag for the, for the prosecution on this thing. Uh, let it go. And, uh, and they've, they've moved on to some other stuff. I, I'll say this. I, I think of what has been presented to this point, that those Willis, that Willis allegation of, because what the allegation involving him is, is that Blakely called him uh, and said, I'm going to overpay you from the campaign account uh, for services. And then I want you to refund me the money person the overpay wow um and wow. willis says he mm. did that and so basically incriminating wow. himself in that as well um mm. and so that to me is the biggest of 
of the things that they have put up there so far. And that's the one that would cause Blakely the most trouble. Unfortunately, the guy that they have on the stand for them has lied his ass off uh, uh, several times, and they're going to have some real trouble in the coming days when the defense starts their portion of this because I know of three of the rebuttal witnesses that they have for Trent Willis. And it's they're going to rip that man to shreds, rightfully so, uh, because mm. I mean he's you know he's done some some underhanded things I think, um, and you know I think that's going to be a problem. The rest of the stuff, I mean, I'm not saying he's done, he hasn't broken the law, okay, but I think you're going to have a hard time getting a jury of twelve people in Limestone County to convict Mike Blakely of taking money out of the prisoner's account and then putting it back in. All right. Wrong as it may be to borrow money from the prisoner's account or the, you know, the pistol permit accounts as wrong as that might be to put IOUs in there and do that. I don't think that you're going to find 12 people to convict those things. Mm. I just, I, I can't, you know what I mean? I just don't. Yeah. I, I just, I can't see that if you, if, if they know that Mike Blakely might go to jail for those things, I, I meant in the jury selection process, People were crying, talking about having to go and and be on the jury against Mike Blakely. Crying. Mm. Well, you know, and that's where, of course, the justice system gets a little tricky because (laughs) because it it ultimately is driven by human beings, right? Mm -hmm. But 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 if we take emotion out of this, if we Mm -hmm. take emotion out of this, I think anybody would have to admit that it's extremely problematic that you have a sheriff who is borrowing liberally mm-hmm. from, well, you know, uh, public let me say one, funds. Other, one other thing about it. Well, well, well let it. me just say, though, not okay. only borrowing liberally from public uh-huh. funds, but but not even paying back with the consistency with which he said he was going to do. Oh, yeah. no, 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 you're you're 100 percent right. I'll say, though. That the other thing, the other problem that they have with that uh-huh. is that other people were doing it too. You know, well, other you people say other in the people, office. You mean other people in that office? In the office, yes. Other people in the Borrowing office. Borrowing from the IOU. same fund? Yes. They were all they were all writing IOUs and, and she was taking them from, from a lot of people in the office. And so now they said that Blakely did it more so than the others. And here's the other problem is you had that the the state's in an auditor up. And he and the, the lady testified that they told him that it was a no no, and so they stopped doing that. And so I mean, you know what I mean? It just uh, and there was no money missing, and and I think that's where. Listen, I, again, I, I want people to understand. I'm not saying it's right what's happening. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm not saying that at all, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished in some way for this. Uh, but I just think that you're going to have trouble getting those people to do that. And, and the other part, the other part of that is, uh, you know, there was uh, the lady that he, they claimed they basically forced her, uh, coerced her into giving him a thousand dollars, a thousand dollar loan. And, you know, she, they got her on the stand and she's like, well, Mike's my friend. I'd happily give him a thousand dollars. He just suggested it. It wasn't because I didn't ever think I was going to get fired. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And then they asked her, is it fair to say you don't want Mike uh, Mike Blakely to be convicted? And she said, well, of course it is. You know, it was just like, you know, and I think that just, it, it's, um, limestone so is growing. It's just too country, I think, at this point. I, I don't, you know. Well, I mean, you're, you know, and I get your point. Your point is that there's a certain level of sympathy for Blakely. 
And, and in terms of the ultimate impact of the wrongdoing, it doesn't seem to rise to any significant level at all, no. really. And I get all of that. But the problem is not just about what has happened, or it's about what could happen. Sure. And I think that's the real issue here. What could happen, you know, is, is scary when you think about not just the idea that this is, a, this is in an institution where justice is supposed to be the prevailing principle. Oh, 100%. You know, and legal and, 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 and acting within the law is. But also, when you, when you look at the fact that it has been shown that there is a very real problem in the culture of Alabama sheriff's offices as it relates mm-hmm. to the treatment of these inmates and the specifically yep. the feeding of these inmates. So you're you're talking about depleting a fund that's supposed to be used to help to feed and take care of inmates. Yes. It's not yeah. there for the sheriff or for the other employees to get interest-free loans. That's not what it's there for. And so there's something that is profoundly disturbingly wrong about the idea that that's what that money is being used for and that there's no oversight to either prevent that or at the very least, again, going back to our conversation earlier about where the line is, at the very least, Josh, there should be some oversight to ensure that if people are being allowed to borrow some reasonable amount of money, that they are also going to be held to paying it back, and I would even argue with interest. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with any of that. I, I don't. I mean, I I think that it's it's perfectly right. Uh, you know what? Uh, for him to be, um, you know, to held to that standard, and and you know, and for it to be a, uh, for for there to be some trouble for him out of this. Mm. I, I just uh, my I when I when I when I read what's taking place and the questions that are taking place though in there, it just strikes me as. You know, Mike's been here 40 years. You know, uh, he's been our sheriff for 40 years, running this rodeo, running by the house, bringing the horses over for the kids to ride on, uh, you know, and, and doing doing these things anytime. You know, and he is kind of an old school sheriff, dude, you know, where you, you call up, you call up old Mike and he'll come over and fix your problem for you, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just that. And, and I think I'll say this. It's, it's clear that Mike Blakely has a gamble. All right, that that is obvious. He has a That's severe gambling like problem. Yeah. Uh, and like, yeah. again, though, not illegal, you know, and they can run through all that stuff that they want to about what how much he's spending in the casinos and stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and Josh, is it just a gambling problem? Well, because some that. of the reporting I've read suggests that it's more than just a gambling problem. Yeah, he's a, he's. A, I mean, it was gambling and, and alcohol. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and and so I, you know, but I. As of yet, they have not really presented evidence of the of the alcohol problem, but the gambling issue is is pretty clear. I mean, he loved to go to the casinos and uh, uh, was in them spending large amounts of money. Now, so far, what they have presented is him spending his own money in these casinos because he won that lottery in Tennessee or wherever it was uh, for nine hundred and seventy something thousand bucks uh, back in twenty sixteen or twenty fifteen, and and so you know it, that you know is it. it is it bad for him to go and blow a lot of money in a casino like he has? Yeah. But I mean, is it illegal? No. 
And so, you know, and I know what they're doing. I know what they're tying it to that. I'm just saying when when you're doing it the way that they are, it strikes me as it because I, I think what they're talking to is a jury who primarily is looking to give Mike Blakely an out. All right. And so to me, I think you've got to present a case that's that does not allow a jury to do that. And so that to me would be hammer all of these big things first and then get into showing me why that happened and what, what took place and lay that thing out. But I, I don't well, think that they've done that to me. Well let me ask you let me ask you one other thing. I wanna wanna see what you're because you you know Mike, I don't I don't really know Mike. I haven't been around Mike in years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Mike. You you've been following this case a lot more closely than I. Let me let me ask you this: mm-hmm. Do you think that it's a good look? I'm not talking about you know. I stipulate to the fact that going to casinos is not illegal, but is it a good look for a sheriff? to be spending on a regular basis hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in a gambling establishment, even if it's legal. Is that a good look for a sheriff? I'm not talking about for a podcast host or, you know, or a medical doctor or a school teacher necessarily, but a sheriff. I, uh, I'll tell you, I am probably not the right person to ask about this because I think that our feelings towards gambling in this state in particular are Mm -hmm. really screwed up. Uh, I don't view gambling as anything other than a form of entertainment. I don't view it as anything more than, than going to watch football. Uh, you know, that's the same thing to me. I, I hear people talk about, oh, what a great time we had going to the Alabama game. You know, we we spent, we went to dinner, we spent, you know, eight thousand dollars on tickets and things like. You know what I'm saying? And to me, they they went and they had a great time uh, with an entertaining thing, uh, a source of entertainment that they enjoy. And Mike Blakely or whatever sheriff went to a casino in a place where it was legal. Uh, gambled and had a great time doing what he liked to do as his form of entertainment in a legal setting. And to me, I don't view either of those things differently. So, I mean, that's that's just how I view it. I think a lot of other people in this state will will view it differently uh, because of the stigmatism we place on gambling here because of the illegality well, of it. Okay, so I want to make a distinction here because I don't have a problem with people generally. I don't have a problem with people gambling. In fact, mm-hmm. I would have, to me, this would be a non-issue if Mike Blakely weren't a public official. This would be a non-issue mm-hmm. uh, if he was just somebody, you know, in the private sector or somebody, a working man who was going to the casino, spending his money and, you know, OK, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't right. care at all. But but when you are a public official and especially when you're charged with, you know, law enforcement responsibilities, I think mm-hmm. you have to really be circumspect in what you do and how it looks and 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 the implications of what you're doing. Uh, and so somebody who has who apparently it appears that you've already conceded has a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. That then suggests to me that they are open to or certainly vulnerable to potentially mm-hmm. compromise. Sure. Ergo, 
what we're yeah. talking well, about. We're on here. trial for that. You know what I mean? Exactly. Right? We're on trial. So that's I mean, why that, I'm that, saying it, it's yeah, a bit just, it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. You know, yes. but that's what I, I'm I, saying. I think you're if right. You're, if you're, that, but. but that's what I'm saying. If you're a sheriff, I just don't think you ought to be doing that. I think you, you know, retire and do that. You know, uh, you know or, man, I just, uh, I have a problem no, with a double standard a for people. I, I just have a problem with No, it's a, not a, a double a, standard. When you, oh, well, when you have, I, when you have certain positions, mm. you, you concede to certain sacrifices and that applies to police officers. It applies to preachers and priests. Yeah. I mean, it, it applies to medical doctors. There's just certain positions where there are just some things you should not be doing. I don't know, man. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I think we disagree on this. Uh, I just, okay. I, I don't have a, I okay. don't have a problem with, uh, with him going and, and getting and doing and, and, uh, you know, partaking in a legal activity, uh, somewhere that, uh, you know, uh, it, it, as long as, as long as there is no criminal behavior from his part, uh, something that doesn't encroach on his ability to be the sheriff and uphold the laws where he is the sheriff. I mean, that's well, to me. Well, I'll grant now, you this. Now, I think, we're, I think we're now getting into the territory of deciding whether or not that has been the case. And I, and I was just going to say, I'll grant you this. If he hadn't done what he's been alleged to have done or, or what he's apparently has done, mm-hmm. if he hadn't done those things, we wouldn't be talking about it. Sure. Sure. I know. We wouldn't I, be no, talking it's, about it's, it. it's, you're right. You're right. It's, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think it's up to those people to determine whether or not he has... Uh, uh, he has broken the law, and we'll we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any question that he has certainly bent it. Uh, you know, he certainly bent the hell out of it. Uh, so yeah, um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. He's bent the hell out of it. Yeah. I agree. But the guy, listen, the other problem they have is the guy in charge of investigating him uh, and running the trial. Our AG Steve Marshall has, huh. has his own issues. Uh, Doesn't so, he? Uh, Doesn't and he? that's uh, Steve Marshall is going to be our right wing nut of the week this week because uh, yeah. our. APR's Eddie Burkhalter uh, contacted the AG's office this week and asked them uh, for Steve Marshall's calendars, which are public records. Mm-hmm. Uh, every public official's calendar is a public record uh, in this state and in most states. Um, as a matter of fact, Kay Ivey uh, turned over her records, her, her calendar a few uh, years ago, and it was, you know, they gave them to me, and it was, uh, they, they were not pretty, and they knew they were not going to be pretty when they, get, when they turned them over. Large blocks of time where there was just nothing, mm. um, and and so you know Steve Marshall though uh, his office has refused to turn over his calendars for the time periods leading up to the January sixth insurrection. Now, why would they do such a thing? Burkhalter hmm. asked them, "Why will you not hmm. give me these calendars?" And the response back was, "It is a security issue." Pool. A security issue That's because pool. somebody <laughs> could go back in time and possibly find out where Steve Marshall is and really injure our AG. Um, That's a bunch of bull. Yeah. Well, listen, I don't think it's bull at all, David. I think there is a security issue here. All right. And it is the security of Steve Marshall and his current position that is at stake. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Ah. Um, I, I think that, uh, and look, but look, honestly, uh, I'll say this, though. We do have the best possible investigator investigating the issue of Steve Marshall and his, uh, and that little fund that he runs for the Republican mm-hmm. attorney general's association. We have the best investigator investigating Steve Marshall and that is Steve Marshall. So mm-hmm. investigating himself. Oh uh, God. These people. Yeah. This is, this is definitely uh full of uh, corruption. Alabama. It, 
in my yeah. opinion, this is this is an innately corrupt situation, yeah. no yes. doubt about it. And <laughs> and my question is, how is he? Where does it end in terms of? Okay, so they've refused the FOIA request from Eddie. Yeah. So what happens next? Nothing. That's 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 a damn shame. That's a damn shame. And so, I mean, we could we could hire an attorney and take it to court and do all that, but uh, at the end of the day, no judge is going to make him turn it over. You know, mm. he's the AG. Nobody's going to make him do anything. So there's no teeth. It's not like Florida that, uh, where their public records uh, statute actually has teeth. There's none here. Some people have tried to change it, but nobody wants to really change it. So it's never For obvious reasons. Oh, for yeah. obvious reasons. But, so you can hide your insurrection. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I don't, listen, great show. Probably our best ever. Listen, I, you think know, it, I think it went it, well. It I went think it well. went well, too. All right, listen, we're going we're gonna to slide out of here. We'll be back uh, next week with another fine episode. Until then, y'all be safe out there. Peace.